Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Yet, um, uh, the big news, I mean, it's actually on the banner start the day here headline on CNN, on Fox. I mean, everybody is concerned about one particular story today. Um, and it's actually a story that is um, quite black and white. It's about the panda, the giant panda cub uh, at the National Zoo. I, I, I. I knew there was a panda cub at the National Zoo. I did not know that the gender reveal related to the giant panda cub would be headline news today. I mean, across every um, news outlet. So you can watch the adorable giant panda cub gender reveal um, posted by the Smithsonian's National Zoo on every outlet. And you can read about um, how they arrived at uh, the, the confirmation through DNA testing uh, that, in fact, and here's the spoiler alert, it's a boy. It's a boy. Okay, now, so just pause there for just a moment and, and just consider the cultural time in which we live. And ask yourself, okay, so. Clearly, when it comes to pandas, we are convinced that there are two options, male and female. Science apparently apparently knows this. The Smithsonian apparently knows this. The National Zoo apparently knows this. Biology apparently knows this. DNA testing has confirmed it, revealed it, verified it. Now, just pause there for a moment. You know where I'm going. I mean, I don't even, like, right, I have led you to the water. The world denies the reality of two options, male and female, when it comes to human beings. A growing percentage of people here in the United States and around the world, now regard gender or sex as fluid across a spectrum, not binary, not limited to male and female. Some states uh, in the United States of America now allow for people to describe themselves in, in ways that are, I'll just describe them as tertiary, not male or female, but something else. Let me just circle back around here. The headline news across every outlet today is that the Smithsonian National Zoo has had a gender reveal party for a giant panda who has been confirmed to be, drumroll please, 
a boy, male. Does that make any consistent sense to you? No. It's literally, it's literally evidence of a disintegrated and disintegrating worldview. That is all I have to say about that. Justin Gibney is up next. He and I are going to talk about what exactly happened in what I will describe as the collapse of the defund the Minneapolis police effort. What what happened in all of that? We're also going to talk about uh, an article on uh, the both and nature of politics. And we're going to talk about Christian ethics and how and why they must prevail. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Justin Gibney, you can find him at the And Campaign. Justin, welcome back. Hey, Carmen, thanks for having me as usual. Absolutely, I, I have such a, a laundry list of things I'd like to talk to you about. Um, I'm hoping that we can get to a preview or maybe what you anticipate in the vice presidential debate um, tomorrow. But let's lead off with uh, what's being described as sort of the collapse of the dismantle or defund the the effort. Um, in Minneapolis, in, in terms of the police, can you can you kind of walk us through what happened in terms of um, them not being able to arrive at police reform that that maybe is uh, that maybe continues to address the issue underlying uh, the effort? Sure. So what you had was several several city council uh, people uh, taking this pledge to defund the police. Um, which was somewhat vague. I mean, depending on who you ask, you may get different answers about exactly what that means. But nevertheless, for whatever reason, some of the council people decided to sign off on it anyway. Well, once they signed off on that, uh, crime rose. You had people in the the African-American community, leaders who had been there for a long time, saying these folks who are asking you to sign that pledge don't represent us. In fact, many of us actually want more police. We just want them to treat us better. We just want them to to be held accountable. Um, and so after as time went on, the pressure on these council people uh, really, really got hot. And they started kind of backtracking on, on that pledge because they saw that it just wasn't practical and that they, I think, too early had given in to some activists, many of whom didn't even represent the African-American community, many of whom didn't have connections with the people who have been advocating in those communities for years and the policies that they were pushing uh, just were not realistic and actually just weren't helpful for the community community they said they were trying to protect. And so ultimately, we arrive at a place where um, there are people living in communities where they, you know, they really would prefer more police presence, but they want those police officers to um, be specifically trained. They want them to be competent in what they're doing and able to address a range of issues that are not just that are not um, only law enforcement oriented. How realistic is that from your viewpoint in terms of uh, actually equipping law enforcement officers to do things that go beyond uh, the limits of actually enforcing the law? Yeah, I mean, I think the demands coming from the community and, like I said, people who have been advocating for those communities for years are very realistic. 
uh, they, they're dealing with the actual reality that's going on in, in those communities. One thing that I don't want to be lost is people in these communities do want change when it comes to uh, police. Mm-hmm. They do want police reform. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's more than one way to go about it. I think one of the mistakes that we make is we think anybody asking for police reform is asking for the same thing. And that's just not true. And even with the defund movement, although it's not, uh, you know, although it's not something that I um, support in whole, there is, a, I think, a, a good conversation to be had. And there's some merit in the conversation about when should police be engaging the community? It seems that there are some instances where it would be better for you know, for the police not to be engaged in the community because there's no violence going on. And and some of these instances actually get worse because of some because of how the uh, police engage it when they didn't necessarily have to. So I don't want to throw everything out of that conversation, but it is important that we're listening to the people who have been in these communities for years and not just people who look like them or or say they're uh, they're representing them and don't really understand that community. There's actually a, a feelings conversation that um, that we've been having um, with some kids in our community. And, and, and it goes something like this. Do, how do you feel when a police officer arrives? I mean, how do you actually feel? Do you feel better or do you feel more afraid? You know, whatever was going on that precipitated the arrival of a police officer, does the arrival of that officer and or officers does that does that increase your anxiety or does that make you actually feel like, oh, there's you know peace, a peace officer has arrived and you know I'm going yeah. we are headed we're headed in the right direction. Um, and that has been um, just the reactions of young people answering that question and, and allowing adults to hear the answers to that question um, has been helpful just in getting the conversation moving forward in at least in the small place where I live. So um, I recognize there are lots of different ways to approach this, but I think that asking people to define what they mean when they use a term, particularly if it's a sloganized kind of term, is really, really helpful in these conversations. Um, Justin, we have to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, can we talk about um, Christian ethics, how you're defining that? And um, when we talk about Christian ethics must prevail, what do we mean by that? And then, um, and then let's have you sort of preview or tell us what you anticipate about the vice presidential debate tomorrow night. I'm talking with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign, and we'll be right back. Today, I'm hungry and I'm ready for change. I run too far to still be the same. Continuing my conversation with Justin Gibney, you can find him at thecruxandthecall.com. You can also find him at the AND campaign. Uh, you can find him at uh, the, the Church Politics podcast one that I have teed up on my uh, listening list. Um, Justin, let's talk about distinctively Christian ethics, um, because it's not just heating up out there. It's already hot, and accusations fly in both directions, and people, you know, dig down their heels as either red or blue. And in the midst of all of this, Christians have a witness. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we have to understand that um, when we walk into the civic space or we walk into culture, that we are provided with a certain framework. And the framework that we're given, whether it's an ethical framework or what a political framework, is not always biblical. And one of the problems that we have is we don't necessarily reframe the issues and how we ought, because when we talk about ethics, you're talking about what we ought to do. If we allow others to frame what we ought to do rather than the Bible to frame what we ought to do, we, we a lot of times end up in a bad space 
Because the fact of the matter is, as an attorney, I can tell you the way that I ask a question or the way that I frame a question can determine if there's even a right answer to that question. And so often Christians get into their political parties. We get into these ideological tribes and the issues are framed wrong. The issues are framed in a way where we can't give a biblical answer. And so Christians need to be very uh, deliberate about making sure that we're framing the issues for ourselves so that we're following a Christian ethic and not a secular progressive ethic or a uh, ideologically conservative ethic. All right. Um, I think that is so well said. And reframing reframing the conversation, reframing the question. I mean, that is so Jesus-y. Like, that is what he did. I mean, he was asked a question, and then he, you know, reframed it. He was, uh, there was something going on, um, people trying to accuse or, and Jesus reframed the situation, and he reframed the conversation, and things actually changed. Now, hearts did not always change, but people were often awakened to their own hypocrisy in the midst of it. And I think that's part of uh, the role of Christians today in, uh, in in the cultural and civic conversations that we're having. Part of what we need to be doing is just helping people see themselves, hold up a mirror and allow people to see themselves. And so the conversation that we had about asking a question um, that that forces somebody to go beyond a talking point and actually have them define a term that they're using or define um, a point that they are uh, potentially just parroting, um, and then here, what we're talking about is reframing the way something is being talked about or reframing a question that's being asked. And so those are skills that we learn uh, as Christians as we seek to advance the Christian ethic in the midst of conversations that are often just politically partisan. Is that a fair uh, a summary, Justin? Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent summary. I mean, we it all comes down to the fact that Christians have to be critical thinkers. And for whatever reason, society and sometimes internally, we don't even think of Christians as critical thinkers. But we have to be that. We have to look at these ideologies and what's giving to us and think about them critically. The interesting part about this is there is data that shows and research that shows some of the most educated Americans are the ones who think least about what they're doing. They actually get their values from their identity. So if I went to Harvard and I'm Ivy League, I'm going to believe what people in that group are supposed to believe. And some of the most educated people fall into that more than lesser educated people. So it's not necessarily just about education, although we promote that. It's about being a critical thinker and not just following a tribe because that's what you're supposed to think. All right, let's go. Let's do a little um, preview or anticipation um, for tomorrow night's vice presidential debate. I think there's a lot of us that are very much looking forward to it as potentially uh, a substantive exchange of ideas. Yeah, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping it's better than what we saw last week. Uh, I, I <laughs> it couldn't to get possibly to the issue. be worse. It just it couldn't. couldn't, it so. couldn't we, can, we only can go up, and we talk about <laughs> that on the Church Politics Podcast this week. Um, but, you know, debates, I'm, I'm an old school debater. I, I, I lettered in high school in, in football, basketball, track, and also debate. And so I have a high, I have long had a high value of debate and understanding why debate is so important for our discourse. And so I hope they get to policy. I hope they defend their premises, defend their conclusions, and talk about in a very practical way how they're going to help Americans. We cannot forget that this is about how they, what solutions they have to help hurting Americans. And so when we go insult for insult and, you know, just see these back and forth that really are not substantive or edifying, they're doing hurting people a disservice. And so we should all push push back on that. And that gets back to your think more deeply point as well. 
Um, as right. long as we just allow people to exchange, you know, barbs, which which if we were, you know, if we were moderating or training up kids um, in civil discourse or in debate, we would not allow them to make the ad hominem attacks or, you know, or put those, you know, d- those fallacies, that whole list of, of logical fallacies that get used by some people sometimes. And we ought to call them out. And we wouldn't we would not allow it to happen if they were kids. Um and so for us to put up with it as as citizens, um, you know, it just sort of reveals maybe the devolution uh of our of our cultural exchange. But I am with you looking forward to substantive policy debate. I think the uh, the point that you make about, OK, what are the premises uh, that this person is operating out of? And then what are the conclusions that, are, that they're drawing from that? And then what are the practical solutions they're offering? Ultimately, that's what we are voting for. We're voting for the practical solutions that uh, that one party or the other, uh, represented by an individual, um, is putting forward. And in terms of, you know, where we're going to go and how they would lead should they have the opportunity to do so. So that's what we're looking for in tomorrow night's vice presidential debate as well. I'm not sure, Justin, that there's ever been a year that the vice presidential debate has been so important because both candidates uh, that lead the lead their party's tickets are, you know, frankly old. Yeah, it's it's really important. I mean, you know, these are two people who, you know, God forbid any given moment could could be in that in that situation. I think there's questions that they need to answer. Uh, And so let's let's hope that they keep it um, uh, constructive and that we get some real answers. And I think it's on all of us, regardless of our party, to demand that. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. Agree. Um, Justin, uh, thank you, as always. Really appreciate your being with us. That's Justin Gibney. You can find him at the and campaign. You can find him at the Church Politics podcast. You can find him at the crux and the call. He's he's becoming ubiquitous, but we're glad you continue to join us. We really appreciate it. Always. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right. We'll be right back. All right. It seems like a really opportune time to mention again the gender reveal party that's ongoing related to the giant panda at the National Zoo. Because, after all, if we can... If we can celebrate that a panda is a boy, then we ought to be able to celebrate that a boy is a boy, too. There you go. That's my breakpoint summary. Uh, And again, not unusual. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with my friend John Stone Street on what he just had to say on breakpoint. All right. Up next, I've got Jared Wilson. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Jared Wilson and you think this is going to be some wonky theological conversation, (laughs) ha ha! I got something completely new and different. Well, actually, Jared Wilson has something completely new and different. Um, It's called Echo Island, and it's a novel, and it's written for young people, particularly guys, like, I don't know, 13 to 18. All right, so that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lakato. This life contains many walks from Cana to Capernaum, journeys between prayer offered and prayer answered. Jesus promised the boy's father a sure blessing at the end of the journey. He promises the same to us. We will meet this father when we get to heaven, and when we do, I'm going to ask him about that walk. I want to hear how he felt. I want to know what he thought. But most of all, I want to thank him for inspiring this verse. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. 
John 4 and verse 50. Do likewise. Set your compass on the pole star of God's promise. Place one weary foot in front of the other. Jesus has spoken. Let his word do what it was intended to do, and that is lead you home. Remember, my friend, you are never alone. This is Max Locato. is a professor at Spurgeon College. He is author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. He's the author of nearly 20 books. Uh, he speaks at lots of churches and conferences when, you know, we're not in the midst of COVID. This is his second novel. It's entitled Echo Island. Jared Wilson, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. It's fun. This is this is fun. This is a departure <laughs> from what uh, many people uh, would expect to be hearing from you. So let's talk about that. Why why fiction and why fiction targeted at youth? Yeah, well, it began really for me as a storyteller. When I was originally beginning as a writer, I, I was wanting to be a novelist and, and began writing novels. And it, it, it was in the middle of planting a church that my writing um, you know, work really kind of shifted focus to uh, you know, nonfiction aimed, you know, aimed at Christian adults. Um, and this book, you know, originally was, wasn't uh, envisioned as a young adult novel at all, but um, B&H uh, uh, publishers reached out to me to ask about young adult fiction. And this, this story, I, I had it about half written and, and realized that it, you know, centers on, on four teenage boys. And, and I thought it could very easily be a young adult novel. So that's kind of how this book came about. So um, let's distinguish literature that is written for young adults versus literature that is written for adults. And let me frame it this way. Um, This is really not a book that, as a 52-year-old female host of a Christian radio program, um, is really—I'm not really the target audience, um, but my 14- almost 15-year-old stepson is— so what's the difference between me and him and how you approach writing to him versus writing to me? Well, certainly, you know, part of it is, is, is simply the characterization that the characters are characters that young adults, people in that, in that age group can identify with. So typically people their age um, or, or language that is used that would be geared more for their age. But this story in particular, you know, certainly is. Um, the characters are are teenage boys who just graduated from high school, um, and it, it's not just that, but the the way stories are told in the young adult genre. Of course, there's so many different kinds of stories, but it really has something to do with about um, you know growing up or kind of an awakening or, or or coming more into yourself, and and this story is like that as well. Of course, written from a Christian worldview uh, about what it means to to be yourself, to be a a real maturing, grown person. So part of it is, um, I think, also the dialogue. Uh, Very, very early uh, in the book, (laughs) if you are reading Echo Island, you'll hear this. Man, it's cold, Archer said. You sleep okay last night? Meh, okay. I couldn't sleep at all, Archer uh, said. Can't get comfortable. Well, you're you're too bony, maybe. Archer was bony. (laughs) He was tall and stick thin, all angles and points. Yeah, well, he said, without finishing the thought, so part of it is that the dialogue is authentic. Part of it is that the characters are um, relatable to uh, to young adults, particularly, I think, boys. One of the things I really appreciate, Jared, um, is there's there's nothing mushy. 
in this book, um, in in this story, and in the telling of it. Um, I don't have to uh, plan to have a conversation with a young person about a lot of sexual themes. That's just not here. This is um, this is adventure. It's mystery. It it grabs you. The story is really good. Um, there's enough myth in it to sort of keep it moving. Um, but there are also some really deep, there's some really deep subject matter being addressed. One of the reviewers said, um, uh, this writer is as mad as Alice in Wonderland. Now, I think that's high praise. <laughs> talk, talk with us, right? It is. It's a bit mad. So so talk with us about that. There's, um, there's not a story here that unfolds like... Uh, you know, a Jan Karen novel. There's a story here that unfolds like Alice in Wonderland or C.S. Lewis. That's right. I mean, the story begins with the mystery of these boys who've gone camping to celebrate their high school graduation. And they live on an island, Echo Island, off the coast of uh, uh, Washington State. And they go to the mainland to go camping. And when they come back to the island after their trip, they discover that everyone is, is gone. Everyone has disappeared. And nothing electronic works on the island. And on top of that, everything is very still, eerily still and quiet. So there's no wind. There's no you know birds chirping. There's no squirrels scampering in the in the leaves. And so the beginning is just the mystery of of what happened. Where did everybody go? Um, you know what happened on the island. But as they you know pursue that, begin to explore the island, and and pursue kind of the solution to this mystery, it actually deepens. And gets bigger than they even realize. And so the story is even bigger than simply, where did everybody go? So can I can make a confession? When I, sure. when I saw that Jared Wilson had written a book entitled Echo Island, I thought it was going to be about people um, in an evangelical echo chamber who had, like, instituted the Benedict Option. <laughs> So I'm just, well, that's, I'm just that's letting understandable. you know. I'm just letting you know that if people don't actually read it, they're not going to know that it's a that it's a mystery, and they're not going to know that it's a novel. So it's just a little bit fun, right? There's all kinds of directions that stories can can go, and this one um, this one takes uh, some well surprising turns. Why don't you introduce us um, to the to to the characters? Talk with us about Bradley, Jason, Archer, and Tim. Yeah, so I'll start with Jason because he's kind of the everyman character and really the the main protagonist. The four boys are, you know, the four main you know protagonists of the story. Um, but Jason is is kind of their leader, kind of the unspoken leader of the four, and he represents really just sort of the the everyman character. So his growth and his development uh, in the story is really kind of the most important, and and a lot of the development of the narrative kind of centers around him. Um, Archer would be his closest friend among the four. And Archer, the pointy, skinny guy, uh, you know, the, the bony guy that uh, you described earlier, um, he, he's the intellectual type, so kind of the brain of the operation. And he's the one who gets the most obsessive about solving the mystery. He, he, he knows there has to be some logical explanation for, uh, for what happened. And he's kind of wrapped up in his own head, uh, believing he can solve anything. Uh, Tim is a character who's driven by his appetites. Um, he's kind of the, the butt of the jokes for some of the boys and is kind of the slowest of them and kind of a, a gluttonous fellow, but a very sympathetic character as, as well. You begin to feel sorry for him at certain points. And then Bradley is kind of the wild card. <laughs> Bradley is, is the jock. He's the sarcastic jerk. Um, he's frequently mean to his friends, and sometimes you wonder, why are these guys even fr even friends with him? 
and and they wonder the same thing. There are points in the story where they wonder, why are we friends with Bradley? Uh, but he has an interesting arc as well, and I think a very redemptive one too. It's a um, it's a novel about um, how things work. I mean, the nature of reality itself. Uh, there's a God theme for sure, uh, and it's related to the meaning of life and how we pursue it and how grace is involved in all of that. Jared Wilson and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're talking about his new novel. It's really a young adult uh, work, but I think it works for those of us who want to speak into the lives of young adults as well. And we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. It's like the Continuing my conversation with pastor and author Jared Wilson, we're talking about his latest book. It's a novel. It's called Echo Island. Um, Jared, um, let's do this. Why don't you Why don't you talk about the truth behind the idea that mystery gets bigger, not smaller? Yeah. So you know, those of us who, of course, follow Jesus in in into greater knowledge of God, right? The Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth. We discover that the more we know of God, the more there is to know, right? There's no end to this this mystery, which is why we're given um, eternal life, right? And, and, and so the gospel is something that once you're inside of it um, is, is bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside. The, the simple message of, of the good news is something that a, a child can legitimately understand and, and honestly believe in. Um, but it is, you know, as as wonderful and complex as it is, even in that simplicity, the further into it you go, the bigger it gets. And that just makes sense. Like, you know, the closer you get to God, the bigger um, he will appear uh, to you, the more glory there is to be found there. So that that kind of idea kind of resonates in the story as as well. The deeper these boys go, the more complexity, the more depth that they discover. And it really kind of pushes them into the the dilemma of are are we going to trust ourselves or are we going to trust something outside of ourselves and that leads us i think directly into the conversation um about submission to god's will i mean that's another um really significant part of what's happening in um in this unfolding story of these four boys like do i do i submit um to the will of god that's right. And, you know, I don't want to say too much about right. how that comes about because it would be a spoiler. <laughs> so there's a couple of twists in, in, in the story. One of the twists I think most astute readers will, will see coming, and I, and I want them to. Um, you know, I don't spell it out, but I kind of tease it more visibly. But the second twist I think most people will not see coming. And in that twist, really, um, it, it really hinges on pushing these boys to um, determine um, whether they're going to go their own way or they're going to, in a way, kind of submit to the story, um, submit to the, you know, to, um, you know, in, in, in our terms, what God is doing in, in the earth. Are you going to go your own way or are you going to submit to his way? And so one boy in particular just has this kind of crisis of, you know, he kind of shuts down because the idea that someone else is sovereign, that someone else is in control, um, kind of brings him to his knees in, in a way. And, and so he has a, a crisis of belief and, and even a crisis of action. It's, um, there's a storyline in here about grace. Um, obviously, uh, the, 
the thread of sort of finding our place in a in a larger story versus just thinking that, you know, we're sort of the center of of the storyline. I think those are those are in here as well. I'd love for you to just talk about um, teenagers whose electronics don't work. Because that's uh, right. I mean, there's it's not a big <laughs> it's not a big thing um, in the story necessarily, but it yeah. it does provoke a conversation that would provoke a conversation in my house. Let me just say that electronics not working and not working forever. Like you can't. Yeah. That's just not coming back. Let's say. Um, talk about maybe your desire to get kids reading a book versus being glued to technology. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know. Part of it, you know, driving this story was really just kind of thinking back to my own childhood and just how important and influential and formational stories were for me. Um, you know, certainly I had electronics available to me, but not to the extent that that my teenage daughters do today um, uh, at all. But being able to lose myself in a book and in in a way have my imagination um, kind of formed with you know, Christ-haunted stories. So whether that's from C.S. Lewis or uh, J.R.R. Tolkien or, you know, folks like that, I wanted to write a book like that that would kind of let young people escape for a moment, contemplate things bigger than themselves and outside of themselves. Um, and, and within the book, there is some, you know, co- concern about, you know, the electronics not working. It's, it's set in the early 2000s, so um, it's before kind of you know, widespread smartphones and that sort of thing. So there's not a lot of angst in the story about, um, you know, my iPhone doesn't work or, or, you know, things like that. But Archer, the intellectual character, there are are many points where, um, you know, he thinks if I just had the internet, <laughs> if I could mm-hmm. just look something up, you know, so all the all the research that he is doing and, and the other boys are doing, it's got to be done in a library that's dark because there's no lights on, right? So they're trying to pour over books by candlelight. And there's something about that kind of primitive, you know, throwback to to putting more effort and it's more tangible. Um, I think there's something captivating about that. Who did you read when you were a teenager? So Lewis really looms the largest for me and, and you know, his fiction and his nonfiction, but certainly the Chronicles of Narnia, that that very idea that you could, you know, open up a wardrobe or look at a painting in a, in a guest bedroom um, and and end up in an entirely uh, you know other world. His books were like that. You know the books were wardrobes for me um, into another world. So Lewis was the biggest one. You know outside the Christian faith, probably the most influential author for me as a young person was Mark Twain, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which by now I've read probably ten or eleven times. Um, there's something about just the simple, um, you know, the adventurousness of him and the precociousness of him. Uh, you know, the cemetery anecdotes and the cave, um, you know, going down the river, all the things that that, you know, Tom Sawyer is engaging. That just really fired up my imagination as a as a boy. I know a lot of uh, families today are, tur- are turned on to um, Andrew Peterson's wing mm-hmm. feather saga. And I know that people have made a parallel to um, to what you've written in Echo Island to that as well. Um, I think that when I when I think of my. Um, when I think of teenagers who I know who are maybe not being raised in the context of a family where uh, C.S. Lewis um, or Tolkien or or even Mark Twain um, are at the forefront of what's being read, um, I do think that Echo Island provides uh, an an entry into those conversations that's less obviously Christian. 
Is that a, is that an okay way to say that? I think so. I mean, one of the things it doesn't that feel I did high pressure. Book, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, even just the dialogue, as you mentioned earlier, I, I'm I'm a stickler for dialogue that sounds real. Mm-hmm. So whether the book is a Christian book or not a Christian book, you know, um, I read all kinds of novels, um, you know, all kinds of fiction. But one thing that takes me out of it is when people don't sound like they really sound in real life, when they sound like the author, you know, wants them to sound. And so that's you know something that I have a, a you know a, an ear for I think and I think young adults do as well if they're picking up a book that features characters that are themselves but they don't talk like teenagers <laughs> you know do they don't you know, have the same interests or or intonations or um, you know they just don't feel that it's authentic or or accurate so that's one of the bridges I'm trying to make in the book is that the you know as fantastic as the story is. As, as you know, mysterious as the story is, I still want it to have a, a you know, the ring of truth to it. That there's an honesty in it as well. Yeah, it sounds like four boys. It does. That's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, Jared Wilson, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we want to uh, we want to share Echo Island with everyone. Just letting you know that it is uh, it's going to drop soon. We thought today was the publishing day, but now I see that it's still a couple of weeks out. So there you go. We're excited. We're looking yeah. forward to it with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. That's Jared Wilson. The book is Echo Island. We'll be right back. All right. In terms of other sort of youth-related news, I'll cover this quickly. Uh, Kellyanne Conway's daughter, who is 15, her name is Claudia. Um, You're going to see that trending on social media today. It's because on her TikTok account, she has been making um, accusations about the president's health, and obviously because of the relationship that um, her mom, Kellyanne Conway, has had uh, to the president, with the president, with the administration. Um, it's a significant conversation being had about national security and all kinds of other things. It also is evidence of why the president doesn't like TikTok. Just going ahead and saying that. So um, you're going to see that in the headline news today. It gives us a great opportunity to talk about the access that young people have um, to not only the Internet, but to becoming their own broadcast platforms and influencers in the culture. And it's it's notable that what a teenager um, in in her apartment is saying um, about the president of the United States actually looms as large or has um, seemingly greater credibility with a certain uh, subset of people in our culture than does um, like legitimate news sources. And so let me just ask you to consider again how you approach uh, sources of news and um, who you are relying upon, why you are relying upon those news sources, and just to be you know, increasingly careful in the next few weeks. Uh, that would be my encouragement um, because everybody is speaking from a viewpoint. I mean, you guys, you know, I'm forthright about that. Speaking from a viewpoint, you know that. Um, and so just want to make everybody aware of that. And, and I think that part of my encouragement is actually read the underlying information before you repost or retweet or like something um on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or anywhere else. Like before you put your own name to it by advancing it out there to others, actually read the underlying article, read the underlying information. Um, don't don't pass along to others what you have not taken the time to verify for yourself um, because your name is attached to it. And if you're a Christian attached to your name, 
is the name of Christ. And we want to be people who are representing Christ well to the world that he so loves. And so let us be honest represent representatives, representers of Christ to the world today. All right, this has been Mornings with Carmen. You can grab the podcast and share it with someone else by going to MyFaithRadio.com. The podcast will be posted there a little bit later this morning. Um, Paul, my uh, my time.gov clock is not running, which is well, weird. Well, you have 15 seconds. Oh, 15 seconds. Hey, everybody, uh, where in the word are you today? Get in the word of God before you get out there into the world that he so loves. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.